Yes, right. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Uh, the person who meets Jesus today is someone who really, really wants something from him. I guess, uh, you know, um, we've all been in that position at some point in our lives. If you're young and you've never yet been at that position, well, thank God for that, because I can assure you those times will come. If not now, then sometime in the future. And maybe some people here today, maybe many of us here today, are in that place right now, desperately praying for something, praying for a miracle for healing, a relationship to be sorted out, or job and crippling money worries resolving, or a loved one to know Jesus, or even our own faith to be set on fire again like it once was. Things that it's not wrong to want, not wrong to pray for. Indeed, we are commanded to pray for them. We are commanded by Scripture, by Jesus, to bring our needs, small and large, before him. And I think I'd be correct in saying that the person who has an encounter with Jesus this morning is the only one so far in the series who isn't either a Jew or a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. He's what they called a Gentile. He's a Roman. Uh, Roman with a big R. I know our corporate font is a small R, but he would have said, I'm a Roman with a big R. The Romans thought they were the best people in the world. They'd conquered all of it, hadn't they? generally not wanted where he was and not like these Romans. And there's a lot we can learn from this desperate man at this crisis point in his life, at his lowest point, about how he brought his needs before Jesus. So Steve, I did have for my next picture, a picture of a little boy throwing a tantrum at the till because he wanted sweets. He was in Tesco's and wanted Smarties. Or actually, I couldn't see the detail. I'm making that up. He could have been in Morrison's wanting Quavers. But whatever, he was at the till throwing a tantrum. That's not the thing. And then I took that picture out because it was offensive. It was inappropriate. It's inappropriate to two sets of people. It's inappropriate to our kids because the parents won't believe this. But our kids are all lovely and perfectly behaved and start kids' club every week, repeating the rules that they themselves came up with about being nice to one another, learning the four most important words, please, thank you, sorry, and excuse me. And their behaviour is always delightful, so it wasn't fair on them to use a picture of a child having a tantrum. But also, it wasn't fair on people who facing these desperate times to equate it with a child who wants sweets. It makes light of these tough times in our lives that I can guarantee everyone over a certain age has been through times of real trauma, of real desperation before God. So instead, I chose this much nicer picture of a much nicer child who would be most welcome in our kids' club at writing her Christmas list, which no doubt includes a request for world peace, everyone homeless to have a house, and an end to hunger, because she's that sort of child, like our children. But can you remember the strategies you used as children when you wanted something? I can think of three that I used, and they fall, and you may think of other strategies, but they fall into three basic types. The first is, I deserve it. I've been good. I won this at school. I worked really hard. I tidied my room. So that's the first one, I deserve it. The second is, it's not fair. Everybody else has a Thunderbirds 2 with a little compartment that drops out and Thunderbirds 4 comes out automatically. Everybody else has one of those and I don't. Or if you were a girl in those more stereotyped ages, everyone else has Barbie, whatever, and I don't, you know. Uh, So it's not fair. The third one is, I've earned this, or worse, I will earn it. If you, uh, if you give me this, I will tidy my room, I will take the dog out, I will feed the dishwasher, I would load the dishwasher every night for a month. And sadly, when we're desperate, some of these attitudes slip into our prayer life as adults, even if they're 
unvoiced. Their attitudes are still there. And, and you've heard it all, Lord, you know. Uh, we've been good Christians, Lord. Why, Lord? Why has this terrible situation fallen on us now? You know, I'm a faithful servant. I've helped at kids' club. You know, I've, I've babysat and things. Why can't I find a husband like everyone else when all my friends are having children? We've worked so hard. We've worked so hard at being godly parents. And now my child won't even come to, to youth club. You know, just put this right, Lord. And just do this for me, Lord, and I'll change my ways. So those sort of attitudes creep in. So what can we learn as people who want to be mature Christians, mature people of faith in God from this Roman centurion today? A man with a tough job. That was brilliant, Steve. Yes. <laughs> a man with a tough job. Now, to the Romans... The centurions were their idols, like that footballer who came in for a few weeks, you know, while he was here. Uh, the Portuguese chappie, whose name, uh, Fabio, is that right? Uh, they're the idols of their time. They commanded the legions that brought order and law and aqueducts and roads and libraries, and I'm sure you can think of a few other things, to the whole world. The Roman font that I'm reading from today. If you passed a centurion on the street in Rome in the market when he was home on leave, you would gaze in awe at these idols, these, these semi-gods among men. You would ask for his autograph if you were very, very brave, because you didn't know whether he would take the stick they always carried and beat you to a pulp, which they were allowed to do. They had been promoted, the historians tell us, Roman historians as well, not because they'd been to the right school or had the right education or the right connections. They were promoted from the ranks because they were the bravest and most steadfast in battle, the natural leaders, the most disciplined soldiers, but most of all because they were the quickest to take orders and put them into practice. In a dog-eat-dog world, they were the top dogs, and in a small seaside town like Capernaum, this guy's word was law to soldiers and locals alike. But to the locals, sadly, he's got this sort of uh, image he has to get over. He's one of the hated conquerors who lord it over their land with their foreign gods and foreign ways and foreign language, who tax them to the hilt, who oppress them. And the behaviour of his men doesn't help. We know earlier in Luke how he has to struggle to keep them in line because you don't watch them for a second, Jesus says. You know, be content with your pay. Stop lying about people. Stop extorting money from them. They were always trying it on. Uh, and this didn't endear them as a, as a group anymore to the locals. And not only that, they had all sorts of legal rights, the Romans. A Roman soldier, if he was having a tough day, could just drag you out of the congregation there and say, do you know what, can you carry my baggage as far as my pack and my spear and my shield, about 60 or 70 kilos, on a scorching day all the way down to Burkdale Station, about a mile, because I don't fancy doing it. That, that was within their rights. No wonder... Revolt was never far away. No wonder the Romans in general weren't liked. And his job was especially tough because unfortunately, as well as the Romans, the Jews also thought they were the best people in the world. Why not? Why shouldn't they? They had been chosen and protected by God for a thousand years and given this country of their own. Why shouldn't they think they're special? God himself was on their side. And this sometimes makes them a bit standoffish with outsiders in the best of situations. Hetty, a couple of weeks ago, told us about uh, how John has to explain to the readers that Jews don't mix with Samaritans, their next-door neighbours. And Acts 10, when Peter meets the centurion Cornelius, he says, It is amazing, I'm stood here in your living room, because everyone knows it's against the laws of the Jews for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile in his home. So they were a bit standoffish as well. So our poor chappy today, who is unnamed, is a tough guy doing a tough and probably lonely job 
in an especially tough province to work in. He can never afford to let his guard down or show weakness. A bit like vicars, can't they? They can never show weakness. They always have to present a certain image. This centurion can never show any empathy or softness. And today he is in a desperate situation that he cannot really share with anyone because his servant is sick. I'm amazed today. Yes, his servant is sick. His servant, more correctly, and in most translations, his slave, who he values highly, and the good news puts it better, who was very dear to him, is sick and about to die. This is very unusual that he even cares about it. The Romans were a very pragmatic people. You know from just what they find around Roman camps, and historians tell us as well, Romans were not sentimental. If something wasn't any use anymore, they got rid of it. Whether it was a broken vase or a broken sword, or a broken slave, they just kicked it out. They didn't want it. Um, and this centurion, to, you could flog your slave, you could kill your slave, you could perform uh, all sorts of sexual crimes or torture your slave. You, you could do anything you liked and no one would say anything against you. That's what slaves were. It was like no more rights than a vacuum cleaner. Had they had vacuum cleaners in first century Palestine, you know. That was where it was. So for this centurion to care that his servant is sick is highly unusual. Maybe they'd been together many years and his servant were the closest thing that he had to any sort of family. The only person who saw him when that door shuts at the end of the day. It isn't normal. In Matthew's shorter version, it says the servant is paralysed and suffering terribly. And it's clear that this tough, tough soldier who can never show any weakness is just desperate that this slave is made well again. And those of us here who have cared or visited, uh, uh, have cared for or visited a sick relative or friend will know how hard it is to watch someone who you care about suffer. And I would say perhaps sometimes it's even tougher than being sick yourself to watch somebody else suffer. And that's where he is. He is just desperate, so desperate that in front of all his troops and in front of all the locals, he is prepared to highly, public, highly publicly seek the help of Jesus. And the second unusual thing about him is that despite all his power and all his authority in that town, he doesn't demand a miracle from Jesus. Like the Jews have been demanding miracles, it says, and some other people demanded miracles. He asks, and he asks in a particular way that we will hear about. But there's a third unusual thing about this Roman. He built a synagogue for them. He built the synagogue at Capernaum, which is still, the ruins of it are still there to this day. The Roman had been unusually and wildly generous, not just to a friend, which would have been strange enough to build somebody else something bigger than a house, but to the Jews who he was supposed to rule over. And we are told why, because he loved the nation of Israel. And the word for love that is used is agape. And we have heard so much about agape uh, because it's the love that the New Testament speaks about. It's the love you have when you do something when you don't want something back. It's the love you have that is unselfish. It's the love you have that uh, is even sacrificial to a point. And not only uh, uh, does he do this, he does it with a love for the people of Israel. Somewhere during his posting, he had heard in all these long, lonely years, he had heard about the one true God of love and protection who loves everyone. And the capricious, shallow, venal, false gods of Rome no longer held any appeal to him. And so he had built the Jews of Capernaum a synagogue, a synagogue where Jesus, we know, preached himself 
A synagogue where the word of God and the love of God could be shared, but a synagogue he could never actually go in himself as a non-Jew. And because he's been good to the local Jews, he actually has, strangely, some of the local leaders willing to help him. And he asks them, as it says, to approach Jesus on his behalf because he feels unworthy as a Roman. So as Jesus strolls back into Capernaum after preaching to the crowds all day, these guys come up to him, these elders come up to him. And if you listen to the elders, these local leaders, they're not just doing this begrudgingly because he's asked them to uh, with some sort of force. They want to do him this favour. They don't just say... This Roman says, will we come and ask you, you know, will you help his servant, you know, and, and uh, he has been good to us. They plead for him earnestly, it says. They beg him. Uh, it, verse 4, they, uh, this earnestness, this passion is in there. Why are they doing that? Well, the first is they are genuinely grateful for his gift. You know, we are about to, as you know, do the last big job on this building to secure it for the next 50 years to replace the flat roof that's 45 years old that's beginning to let in water. And it's not a cheap job. And if an atheist walked in here and said, you know what, don't believe in Jesus, but I want to give you 30 grand to repair that roof, you know, we'd be damned grateful. I would write him a very nice letter and probably go to Smith's and put it in a card as well with a Bible verse. That's how grateful I'd be. And if he asked for a favour, I'd try and repay it. But there's something else going on here as well as gratitude. There is a theology at work. And in the Old Testament, the way the Jews thought, a good turn, just as much as a hurt, must be repaid as soon as possible, measure for measure. One good turn deserves another. The Proverbs are full of this sort of thing. So they are duty-bound, if they want to be good Jews and obedient Jews, to repay the generosity of the Roman. And now their chance has come up. So they are passionate, as well as their gratitude and possibly even some personal liking for the fellow, they are passionate about going and saying, this man, uh, this man needs you. But because of this theology, they apply the same thought to their question to Jesus. And if you notice the key line that they say, this man deserves to have you do this. This man deserves by what he said, by what he's done for you, he deserves a miracle. And we'll, that's called entitlement. And we'll come back to that. Because it's certainly not the attitude of the centurion, though. He uses one word to talk to Jesus. He uses this word, Lord. Now, the centurion's attitude is one of humility. This powerful man who controls everything that goes on around Capernaum with an iron hand calls Jesus Lord. Kurios in the Greek, Dominus in the Latin. Dominus is what a slave calls their master. Dominus is what a tenant farmer calls their feudal lord who owns an entire district. Dominus is what a citizen calls the emperor. Dominus, Lord. And yet this officer, this powerful ruler locally um, uses it to a ragged itinerant preacher well known to be a carpenter's son and an unemployed carpenter's son at that from just up the road that is unbelievable humility he says that unlike the jews who said this man deserves to have you do this he says i don't deserve you should even come to my house under my roof he also says you know i don't even deserve that i should speak to you face to face which is why he sent the elders this is not entitlement, this is humility. He desperately hopes that Jesus will help his servant. But unlike the elders, doesn't consider that his actions or his heart or his attitudes or what he says deserves anything from Jesus. What he does have is an unswerving belief that Jesus can heal his servant. 
And not like some magician or faith healer or doctor who has to come and lay hands on them and do things. He acknowledges the authority of Jesus over the whole situation. And he is a man who knows all about authority. It says, I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. I say to this one, do that, and he does that. Everything in his garrison, even when he's not there, runs like clockwork. Everything in the town runs smoothly. Things happen because he says it. And even as a person, uh, as a person with authority, even though he is putting it aside, he recognises the authority of Jesus over the situation. And he knows if Jesus just wills it, the servant will be well. And indeed, he was cured. Now, there's 60 times in the NIV that the word amazed or astonished is used in, in the scriptures. And that's not amazing Yes, that's not amazing because Jesus and later his disciples said and did many things uh, that amazed people. But of these 60 times, you know how many report Jesus being amazed? Two. This is one of them. There's only two occasions when Jesus was amazed. He's not easily amazed, according to the writers of the New Testament at least. The first of those times was, well, do you remember at the start of his preaching ministry, he turns up in Nazareth. And in the synagogue of Nazareth, he declares God's purposes, and they reject him. In fact, they don't just reject him. It's like, imagine, you don't just mutter there, oh, that Johnny's talking rubbish today. You know, you actually grab me, race me out of the church as a mob, and try and throw me under a bus. That's what they did to Jesus. They, they took him up a sharp cliff, and were about to throw him off. Why were they upset? They liked his miracles. They demanded a miracle, and they were upset when he said, I can't do one here. You know, I'm here for everyone, but I can't do one here. And what really set them off, what really tipped them over the edge in Nazareth, when he was reminding them of a passage of scripture about Elisha. And he says, Jesus says from the pulpit, do you know what? I need to tell you guys something. There were many people in Israel who had leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. And yet not one of them was cleansed. Only one person, Naaman, who was another soldier. In fact, Naaman the Syrian was an enemy, like the centurion, he was an enemy of Israel in the same way. And he came to have faith in the one true God. And Mark 6, 6 says, as they they reject him, Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. This Messiah, this Saviour, this Lord who they'd waited a thousand years to come is rejected in his hometown. And Jesus was amazed at at their lack of faith in him. But this time, he's amazed for a good reason. He's amazed in the way that we say, we're amazed. I am amazed at you guys, and God is amazed at you guys, how you have held together for a year in a time of shock. I am amazed at our wardens who have risen to the occasion and led us so faithfully with such servant-heartedness for a year. And we just have to keep it going for another two months, and we will have a new vicar. But this is a different sort of amazing. Jesus is amazed at that, actually, by the way, and he's amazed at us all the time. But he's amazed at the faith of this Roman in a way that is recorded. He observed he has not found this faith anywhere, even in Israel, God's people. Now, he's not talking about the country, because the country hasn't existed for 500 years. He's talking about the people of God. So he's not found faith like this among the crowds who've just listened to him all afternoon on the mount. He's not found it among the people who come up demanding miracles. He's not found it in the zealots who hope he will lead them to revolution. He's not even found it among his own disciples, among Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the others who follow him around and work with him all the time. He has found it here in this Roman. 
You know, we've had a few new babies here of late, and, uh, you know, I like babies as much as the next person, but I watch some people, they gaze, and new parents, I'm sure, the same, they gaze into the pram with amazement and joy at this, at this new person. Where have they come from? This whole new human being with a story of relationship and, uh, with God and life that is yet to be written. They just gaze with amazement, don't they? And in the same way, I think that God is amazed when people come to faith. He is amazed and overjoyed. It says there's a party in heaven when one person comes to faith. But you know what? I think he's also amazed at the times whenever we make the choices to come back and be obedient and do what he wants. Whenever we show our faith and trust in God by our actions towards him or other people that put him first, especially if we've been drifting a little, he is amazed and overjoyed. So well done. Well done. Gold stars all around and special gold stars to this centurion because he has showed faith like Jesus saw nowhere else during his ministry. So there's two things about the faith of the room. The first is humility that we've talked about a bit. In his request to Jesus, the centurion showed humility. Even in this most crucial point of desperation, he did not cling on to his own authority as a Roman centurion. He was prepared to look weak in front of these Jews and his troops and ask Jesus for help. And unlike the elders who said, you know, mentioning all the things he'd done to deserve it, he just said, I don't deserve this, Lord, but please come and heal my servant. He didn't remind Jesus of all that he'd done for him. He didn't even keep it in his own heart. He just said, Lord, Dominus, you are in control here. Because we all like to think we're self-sufficient. I can still remember Andrew preaching about this about eight or nine years ago. We all like to think we're in control, but we're not. We just think there's times in our lives when everything's going well for us and there's money in the bank and we're not sick that we're in control. It's not true. These times will come. And it takes energy and humility to admit that we're not in control. To lay humbly our needs before God. To accept his sovereign will over our lives. To actually share with friends about the fact that we're struggling, like the Roman did. He enlisted the help of his friends. To seek the counsel of church leaders. We don't like to do that. And in our prayers, when we're desperate, even subconsciously, we need to remain humble and avoid any entitlement. And place our trust in Jesus' unfailing love for us that has never let us down yet. This isn't passivity. Because the other thing the Roman showed was confidence. But just before we go on to the next slide, this isn't in, but I was on an Oak Hall holiday recently. And um, uh, this matches a, a song that Mark's going to do at the end. I just want to share a little joke uh, or a story that, that was told to us by the speaker on this holiday. And uh, it must be true because he has, he has just finished a PhD in uh, 18th century American preachers. Uh, do you know there's only one preacher signed the Declaration of Independence? And his name was John Witherspoon. Not Weatherspoon, Witherspoon. He is a distant ancestor of the actress Reese Witherspoon. I would say the famous actress, but I've never heard of her. I've heard of Sandra Bullock and Meg Ryan, but I, I'm only vaguely aware of Reese Witherspoon. But he had a, she has an ancestor called John Witherspoon, who was a, a preacher and an American patriot. And he was also the first chair, uh, the first um, um, headmaster, what they've called principal, of, uh, of um, one of the colleges that's now one of the Ivy League University. So he was a very educated man. And one day a lady comes running in during a sermon and says, Reverend, Reverend, get down on your knees, pray with me now. I want to give thanks to God because you'll never guess what happened. And he goes, okay, one second. What happened? I was coming to church this morning. Yes. I was in my buggy. Yes. Something startled the horse. Yes. 
He bolted, yes. The carriage ran away, yes. It overturned, yes. And here I am without a scratch on me. What a miracle. Get down and give thanks with me, Lord, for this miracle he has delivered for me. And he said, lady, madam, I will get down with you because I want to share something with you. I have driven my buggy down that hill a thousand times. You know what? Never once has the horse been startled. Never once has the carriage overturned. Never once I've been thrown from it. So I have a thousand times more reasons to thank God for his miracles than you do. So um, we need to place our trust in Jesus' love for us. But we need to do it humbly, but also with confidence. Humble the centurion may have been, but he certainly wasn't doubtful. He knew Jesus wanted his servant to be well. He knew that Jesus could make his servant well. And just Jesus giving the word he knew would be enough to make his servant well. So expectation is, uh, is, is there, but it's not entitlement. And desperate, persistent prayer for something is not demanding, but there is a confidence there. We are humble because of who we are, our unworthiness before God, but we are also confident because of who Jesus is, because of his love for us, because of all that he has done for us and all that he can do for us. So in summary, last slide. Last slide? First one again, actually. Yes, great, great. You know, I think Steve deserves a clap. He comes here faithfully and does this for us. Steve, you've done excellent today. They've been bang on time. So, uh... <laughs> and, uh, and, and Hetty and Paul there at the back on the desks as well. No one sees that it's hard work. Give them a clap as well. Right, so... <laughs> yes. Right, okay. Where were we? Oh, yes. Confidence with humility. Confidence in Jesus Humility for our own position. Humility with confidence. The two together. The Roman showed both of those and added a third thing. Obedience. Just as he had learned from youth about taking orders, so he recognised the authority of Jesus over the situation. And Philippians 2 tells us about Jesus' attitude. It says that much more than the centurion, Jesus himself was humble. You see, the centurion didn't just cling on, uh, the centurion didn't cling on to his earthly authority, but Jesus didn't cling on to his heavenly authority. Um, it says in, in Philippians 2 that he became obedient to death, death for us. And therefore, it says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had authority because he was humble uh, but Jesus has authority over all situations. Confidence with humility. We should copy the Romans' attitude in our desperate prayers but essentially they are the attitudes of Jesus. Let's pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us learn from the reading today and the story of this Roman centurion begging Jesus for help. We know you want us to bring our needs before you, whether they're small or big, trivial or desperate, whether, they're, whether we're in a good place at the moment or whether our burdens are crippling us at the moment. Teach us to lay our burdens before you with confidence but with humility. And above all, keep us obedient and faithful to you today 
this week ahead and all our days. Amen.